This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, I'm Erica Pandy, and welcome to Axios Recap, where we dig into one big story. It's Tuesday, November 30th, and we're focused on Airbnb's rentals in Xinjiang, China. An Axios investigation led by my colleague Bethany Allen Ibrahimian found that Airbnb has over a dozen properties listed for rent in the Xinjiang region that are particularly controversial. Xinjiang is where the Chinese government has been committing genocide against Uyghur ethnic minorities while still promoting domestic tourism of that region. The relevant Airbnb listings in Xinjiang sit on land owned by a Chinese paramilitary group that has been sanctioned by the U.S. government for complicity in genocide. So these listings expose Airbnb to regulatory risk under U.S. law. But they also raise an important question about what U.S. companies should do when doing business and doing the right thing don't line up. In a moment, I'll be joined by Bethany to dive into what this investigation tells us about U.S.-China relations and what's next for Airbnb. But first, a couple of notes. We do need to disclose that an Airbnb executive is a member of Axios' board of directors. And a member of the newsroom who worked on this investigation owns a U.S. property that is rented out through Airbnb. We're joined now by Bethany Allen Ibrahimian, author of Axios China. Hey, Bethany. Hi, Erica. So let's start with what you learned this week. China has promoted domestic tourism to the Xinjiang region in the past. What are these new developments? So what we found in our investigation is that Airbnb has at least 300 rentals in Xinjiang. And what we found is that at least 14 of them are located on land that is owned by a sanctioned organization. That's a a paramilitary organization called the Xinjiang Production and Construction Corps. And last year, uh, the U.S. government sanctioned it for its complicity in genocide and forced labor in the region. How did you learn about those particular listings, the ones that are on that land? It was actually quite a process. So I started with the idea of just wanting to map Airbnb listings in Xinjiang. So I worked with Jackie, uh, Jackie Schrag here at Axios, and we we mapped all those listings. And we started actually with some different data. We started with the 380 detention facilities that the Chinese government has used for its mass internment campaign against the Uyghurs. But I also, during that process, got some data on XPCC land holdings. I got that from the Australia Strategic Policy. Policy um, Institute in Australia. And what really surprised me, I, I really did not expect that Airbnb would have any listings on XPCC-owned land, but they did. They had quite a number of them. We were able to find that by you know, first doing the XPCC land holdings and mapping the Airbnb locations over that. And was there anything else surprising that you learned while reporting the story out? 
as someone who follows Xinjiang really closely, what shocked me the most was that some of these listings actually mentioned on the website, on their Airbnb listing, that they are located on XPCC-owned land. This is a sanctioned entity. Like we've known for like a year and a half that it's been sanctioned. And so what it seemed to me possibly was that Airbnb staff responsible for compliance issues didn't, they hadn't even seemed to maybe search their own website to see if this, the name of this sanctioned paramilitary group was mentioned. And indeed it was. And two of these listings said, even, even listed the name of the regiment that they're located on. Did Airbnb know about them? What was that process like taking this discovery to the company? No, they did not. They did not know about these listings. And their position that they conveyed to me is that there is nothing wrong with these listings. Their interpretation, that the, at least that they shared with me, is that the, the sanction uh, requires them to screen the, their direct the person they are tra- transacting with. And none of these hosts, none of these Airbnb hosts are the actual XPCC and thus that's fine. However, that's not really how sanctions work. I spoke with a former U.S. Treasury official who used to work on Global Magnitsky Act sanctions, which is what this sanction is, a human rights sanction. And he told me that actually sanctions compliance is a very complex process. It's not a check the box kind of process and it involves a lot more than just checking and screening the people that you're doing transactions with. So th- that was Airbnb's line. I believe they spent you know several days sort of scrambling to you know, talk to their lawyers about this. I would say there's like sort of a big takeaway from this. There's a couple. And one of them is that sanctions on China in general are quite new. Um, We only started seeing, you know, human rights related sanctions on China a couple of years ago. It's a pretty new um, thing for companies to have to be dealing with. We're, We're much more accustomed to North Korea sanctions, terrorism related sanctions, Cuba sanctions, that kind of thing. Another thing is that OFAC, which is the Office of Foreign Assets Control at Treasury, that's the office that um, does enforcement and compliance for sanctions, only has 200 employees to enforce 9,000 U.S. sanctions. So they're really, in a lot of cases, not actively doing investigations. They expect companies to self-disclose. So is Airbnb at risk here? I mean, where does this go next? They're certainly at risk. There, it's you know a regulatory risk here, and um, that was something that was impressed you know upon me um, by several experts, you know, uh, lawyers and, and analysts and, and others that I spoke to. That this is most certainly a regulatory and reputational risk for Airbnb. Beyond just the the legal part of this, I mean, what about the right thing to do? I mean, did you speak to anyone who was talking about you know? Maybe it's okay. Maybe there isn't a law being broken here, but should Airbnb have properties on that land or in Xinjiang at all? That is the larger question. And especially when you think about, you know, how many listings Airbnb has in Xinjiang, you know, at least 300. I told you that we did map them next to the 380 detention facilities. And there are Airbnb listings that are really close to detention facilities. Speaking more broadly, the Chinese government is actively promoting tourism in Xinjiang especially this year. And that is very likely in part because of some of these sanctions and other restrictions. The Chinese government's worried that's going to harm Xinjiang's economy. And so they're promoting tourism as a kind of a buffer. 
that by itself makes participation in the Xinjiang tourism industry kind of you know questionable from a from a human rights perspective and it's even worse than that because tourism in Xinjiang part of it is aimed or it's part of the appeal it's not just the natural beauty of Xinjiang the desert landscapes but it's also the opportunity to go and see sort of this you know these diverse cultures that are perceived as being kind of quote unquote exotic in mainland china so domestic chinese tourists love to go to Xinjiang and you know watch Uyghurs do traditional dances and do tours of mosques and cultural sites along the historic silk road stuff like that but the Chinese government is committing a genocide against Uyghurs. They're promoting cultural tourism on one hand, but committing a genocide against, you know, the against that culture on the other hand. And then there's another problem here too, which is that Uyghurs themselves, around 10% of the population are actually being held in these mass internment camps and people who aren't are very frequently subject to travel restrictions, so they can't leave their own cities, they can't even leave their own neighborhoods. Uh, it's a problem throughout China that Uyghurs aren't really, have, have trouble booking rooms in hotels. There's widespread discrimination against them. So this tourism industry in their own homeland is basically blocking them out. They can't enjoy that tourism for themselves, and it's appropriating their culture while the Chinese government is committing a genocide against them. And that's that's the that's the overall environment that Airbnb is choosing to operate in in Xinjiang. We've got Airbnb on one hand, and then on the other hand, you've reported on how lots of other companies have been trying to de-link from the Xinjiang supply chain. They've been trying to unwind their manufacturing relationships in that region that have involved or relied on forced labor. Can you explain the larger state of play with how most companies are now regarding involvement with the Xinjiang area? So U.S. law prohibits the importation of products made with inputs from forced labor. And as more research has shown, there is extensive coerced labor in Xinjiang. And those supply chains are linked pretty closely to a lot of global supply chains. So we know that as a theory, right? And we know some specific examples, but it's it's really hard on a more granular level for companies to delink their supply chains for several reasons. And one of those is just the opacity of global supply chains. So there's so many inputs and, you know, products travel around so many places, it's hard to know what, you know, what exactly is going into them. And this is made a lot harder by uh, the Chinese government's active attempts to prevent audits. So firms that do supply chain audits in China have come under a lot of pressure from the Chinese government to not to not investigate in Xinjiang or to not publish their findings or to not or they've been actually punished in some cases for even for, in, for even doing that. So it's getting harder for companies to even know if they have forced labor inputs in their supply chain. And also companies, you know, US or foreign companies that have publicly stated that they're going to for example no longer use Xinjiang cotton have been subject to consumer boycotts in China which are in part state fanned. So they have faced pretty big revenue losses because those actions are perceived as harming China, discriminating against China, discriminating against Xinjiang, and also enacting, basically serving as a foreign agent of of Western powers. Airbnb and other companies have a very, very narrow path to walk. Before I let you go, Bethany, I'm curious, what have you seen and heard even just since your story broke this morning? 
Well, there's definitely interest from lawmakers on the Hill in this story. There's quite a number of lawmakers who are very concerned about the the situation in Xinjiang and also very concerned about the, just speaking generally, possible complicity of some U.S. companies and what's happening there through providing their technology that's being used for surveillance and things like that. Definitely growing interest from lawmakers, lots of interest from human rights groups. And one one thing I might leave you with here is that Airbnb is also a sponsor. It's a top-level sponsor of the 2022 Winter Olympics in Beijing. And so because of that, it has attracted increasing scrutiny. Call, you know, some human rights groups have called for them to for Airbnb to pressure China on its Xinjiang policies or even to drop their sponsorship. Bethany Allen Ibrahimian is the author of Axios China. Thanks, Bethany. Thanks for having me. Welcome back. What I'm watching today is the movies. Well, I'm not watching them in theaters. I've actually only been to the movie theater once since the pandemic began. Turns out I'm like a lot of other former moviegoers. Some 49% of pre-pandemic moviegoers are no longer buying tickets. That's half of people who used to go to the movies pretty often no longer heading to theaters. And that's according to a study out this week from the film research company Quorum. You're seeing the production companies themselves responding to this trend. They're releasing their films on streaming services at the same time as debuting them in theaters. Of course, that streaming availability could be part of why people aren't filling out seats in the actual theaters anymore. So what can the theaters even do? David Herron, who leads Quorum, told the New York Times that people have listed some things that would draw them back to theaters. They've mentioned newer seats and lower popcorn prices. If theaters don't listen... They may never seat the crowds they did pre-pandemic. That's all for today. I'm Erica Pandy. Thanks for listening, and we're back tomorrow with another Axios Recap.